Hello, welcome back to episode 12 of Finding Your Fearless, a Melbourne Vixens podcast hosted by Joe Weston. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. At Deakin University, every single course is backed by industry experts. This means you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree employers want. Deakin University, progressive real-world learning. Today, I'm joined by swimmer Ellie Cole. She is a four-time Paralympian and most recently was the flag bearer for the closing ceremony of the Tokyo Games. She's also the most decorated female Paralympian with a total 17 medals. Out of the pool, Ellie has been just as successful with her advocacy for people with a disability. Enjoy this chat with Ellie. Ellie, welcome to Finding Your Fearless. How are you going today? I'm super pumped to be talking to you because I've known you for quite a number of years now. Yeah, that actually is. It's like a catch-up call. (laughs) I feel like um, we have a mutual friend who would have swum at the Beijing Olympics with you in 2008. Is that right? Yeah, a long time ago. So if you think that goes all the way back to Beijing, I think I would have been about... 17 years old when I met you. Yeah. That is crazy, right? Because it's 2021 now. So that's nearly clocking 13 years. I know. Our our friendship is a teenager. (laughs) Well, we crossed paths (laughs) a few times since then. I know you've lived in many different parts of Australia, but you were a Melbourne resident for a period of time. But I know you're based up in Sydney now. How many days of quarantine do you have left? Are you nearly done? Nearly done. I am double digits now. So at day 10, so four days to go. It's funny, we get a welfare check every morning and the nurse this morning was so excited that I was up to day 10. And she's like, I sound more excited than you do. And I was like, well, I've been enjoying the serenity after, you know, four years of what we've been dealing with um, as as athletes. And it's been quite nice just to press pause and take a seat for a second. Yeah, the... um um, solitude of quarantine, it's a double-edged sword, but I personally feel sometimes it can be of, of benefit, especially if you're maybe more of an introvert or you've been going through a really hectic time like you have. Like when you're on, when we're on tour, and I'm assuming it's the same when you're at especially a huge event like the Paralympics, there's just so much stimulus all the time and you almost need just to switch off to be able to recuperate a little bit. Yeah, I think if you're in an, in an environment where you're telling yourself, oh, I've only got this amount of time until it stops, <laughs> then, um, yeah, that's obviously quite a, high, a highly stressful environment. It's not healthy to be in them for too long. And so I get the Paralympics, although I wasn't thoroughly enjoying myself in Tokyo, you know, it's, it's an exhausting experience. And, yeah, I did find myself catching myself saying to myself, you know, only two more weeks to go and only only eight, eight more days to go. And, um, yeah, I was looking forward to just finally taking a seat and just relaxing for a while. Well, it's definitely well-deserved. So I guess we'll touch on your most recent um, Paralympic experience in a little bit. But if we flash back, I mean, you've been to four games now, which is just an incredible achievement. But I guess how did you um, first come to find swimming um, when you were younger? Yeah, I'm nearly 30. I've been a swimmer my whole life. Um, I started learning to swim programs when I was just three, Mm. and that was for um, rehabilitation purposes. I just had my leg amputated at three years old from cancer, and um, swimming was just a low-impact activity that I could do um, to learn how to use my body again, really. Mm. 
and just absolutely love the water. You know, if you think about a kid who has a disability or uh, one like me who was missing a leg, I couldn't necessarily play with my friends in the playground the same way. Like I couldn't, you know, go for runs with them, do cross country. Mm-hmm. It was difficult for me to play basketball. But swimming, you know, I could take my prosthetic leg off and I was the same as everybody else. And kids all want to be the same as their friends for some reason. <laughs> and it was, it was very similar to me. I just wanted to feel equal and feel the same and swimming was a way for me to do that. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah, that's really sweet. I guess you never really, you take it for granted, I guess, if you're an able-bodied person being able to participate in most activities when you're younger. And that's all you really want to do when you're a kid is is fit in and be a part mm. of things. So I guess it's really nice that it's led to you having such an established career as an elite athlete. Um, you're classified in the S9 category. For those who potentially aren't as informed, can you maybe explain what that means and how, I guess, different athletes qualify for different events and different classes? Sure. Well, I, I expect most people not to know what S9 means. I even get confused over the, the category system in the Paralympics. So you've got to think at a Paralympic Games, everybody who competes at a Paralympics has an impairment of some sort. Um, and it's not very fair for, say, someone like me who is a leg amputee to race against somebody who maybe has no legs at all. Mm. And so the way that that is overcome is through categorization. So I'm an S9 swimmer, which means I only race against other swimmers who are in the same category as me. Yeah. And the way the categorization works in swimming anyway is um, they kind of rate you from 1 to 10 on your ability level. And so... Uh, S1 to S10, that's physical disabilities. Um, S10 being the least impaired and S1 being quite considerably impaired. Mm-hmm. And that's just designed to level out the playing field, making sure that people with similar abilities are competing against each other. But it's proven to be um, quite controversial, especially in the last few years now that more money has come into Paralympic mm-hmm. sport. And, um, yeah, there's quite a lot of controversy surrounding the classification system now and, um, you know, who should be in what class. And a lot of people are calling it out and saying that it's unfair at times. Oh. And, um, yeah, it's, it could be a real shit show, let me tell you. <laughs> but um, for me, being an S9, I usually only race against other leg amputees, so it's pretty clear cut. But, you know, when you start throwing, say, cerebral palsy in and the, the, the wide – variety of abilities that can come with cerebral palsy um you know it could be very challenging to categorize people because as soon as they start training they might um become more able to swim in the water or or better become better at swimming in the water and then they change classifications again but is that based on what their disability is or is that based on you know them training hard so it's very confusing yeah that would be really difficult especially I guess for in your category it's probably a bit more objective but in those where it's subjective um it would be really hard because you're not you're almost being um not rewarded for training harder if you're moving into a classification where people have greater abilities do you think that they might change it or rethink it at some stage in the future maybe for the Paris games yeah, they they have spoken about that a number of times. Um, like two or three years ago, there was a big overhaul in restructure and how it was done. But you know, it's it's one of those uh, 
systems where you're just not going to be able to please everybody. Mm, yep. um, and, of course, controversy is going to arise from time to time. But um, for me, my job as an athlete is just to swim as fast as I can. <laughs> and I leave it at that. Well, you've done that for quite a considerable period of time, four games. Obviously, that spans not 16, but 17 years, uh, given the delay to the Tokyo Games. I guess maybe we should talk about some of the highs and lows um, over that time period. Maybe if we flash back to 2008 when you were 17, just a teenager heading off to your first games. I guess, what was that like and maybe how does it compare to your most recent experience at Tokyo? Oh, well, I think, you know, I was 16 at my first games and I think that I was I was quite naive as an athlete. Um, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily understand the purpose behind the Paralympics or how much of an impact the whole movement can have on the world. It was, I was just a kid in high school. I think I was in year nine and just, I love to swim. And so I went to the Beijing games with that mentality of, I, I wanted to win. Um, like just because I had a disability, it doesn't, didn't really matter to me at that stage. Um, I didn't understand the platform that I could have been given by competing at the Paralympics. Like I honestly, was just the kind of athlete who would hang out with my friends at lunchtime and talk about that I was going to win the Paralympic Games. And in comparison to Tokyo, that whole mindset has shifted. You know, the, what what Paralympic athletes can give to the world, I understand that now. Like, wh- what a difference we can make to an entire minority across, across the globe. Like, that, that is so much more important to me now than winning medals is. Yeah. And Paralympics is such a great platform for that. Um, and so, yeah, I think my objectives as an athlete have certainly changed over the four games that I've been to. Um, obviously, h- high performance um, and a performance-driven mindset is always at the forefront. But it just every single time I go to a Paralympics, it means something a little bit different to me. Um, and the Tokyo Games were incredible for that. Like. You know, Tokyo in Australia was broadcast on Network 7 and the amount of people online who have come into contact with me and said they've mm-hmm. never watched the Paralympics before, they watched it for the first time and they loved it and they'll keep watching. And I was like, yes, that's great. <laughs> that is, I think, the beauty of more major partners getting involved and seeing the value of what it brings. I guess there's the big piece about for those who also are living with a disability, being able to see people in the spotlight, but also I guess just how inspiring it is to see people with such resilience who have been through so much still just achieve amazing feats without letting that defeat their spirit and I know you're part of a couple of realize this time and that's one of the things I love about swimming you know I'm a team athlete and I know swimming is a very individual based sport but the realize are kind of the best part because you get to you get the best of both worlds right yes I'm very jealous you're in a team sport actually I remember going and seeing the diamonds playing at the Commonwealth Games final like I just absolutely love team squat. I love everything that team squat represents. Um, you know, I think the idea of stepping up and training as hard as you can with something bigger than just yourself in mind is always really like just. I just love a team player. I really do. Um, and so to be able to step up for a relay, I was so amped. Like. <laughs> You know, getting to the call room and seeing my other three teammates there and looking at the other countries and thinking, like, right, we've got to take them down. We've got to take them down. Like, let's do this. Um, 
there's something so special about getting in the water and knowing that, you know, you have to deliver a really great performance because at the other end of your race, there is someone else diving in and continuing on that, that work that you've just done. Um, yeah, I, I love being in relay teams. It's my favourite thing in the world. You were just talking, I guess, about maybe coming and seeing a couple of Diamonds games at the Commonwealth Games. That, for me, um, the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast was the first big international multi-sport tournament that I had been to, but also one of the first tournaments where um, all para-athletes, it was just all in one in, really. It wasn't a separate Mm -hmm. event. And I think that was a pretty unique experience for all of us. I don't know what is happening at Birmingham. Have you heard? Is it going to be a similar uh, setup? Is it going to be different? Where? Because I do think sometimes having um, the games run after is amazing because then it's like just equal spotlight on both, perhaps, or mm. even more focus. Yes. Yeah. There is always an argument of, you know, should the Olympics and Paralympics be combined? I don't necessarily think so. I'm, I'm in the same position as you where I think, you know, a spotlight should be shone on people with disabilities for two weeks of the every four-year cycle, you know. Um, Paralymp- the Commonwealth Games, sorry, you know, is a very unique event where para and Olympic sport both compete together. Mm. That's happened a number of times um, in my career at Commonwealth Games, but it's really the only opportunity that uh, – we get to travel with our Olympic team or, you know, that I would ever get to travel with you as a diamond player as well. And I don't know, it's just, it's, I, I love it because it's just a true representation on our team of what mm. our actual community is like back in Australia. Yeah. Um, and to be able to you know, share a team with athletes that I've looked up to for my whole life and have my Paralympic, Paralympic teammates there by my side, you know, showcasing what we can do as well. Like people are loving it. <laughs> it is super, it's super powerful because I guess that's what sport is um, so amazing at, that it's just a real vehicle for representation and the ability, like, you know, no matter where you come from um, and no matter um, what you potentially look like, it is the great equaliser. And I think that's something like swimming and especially athletics. I think that that is why they're so special because they're almost, you know, they're very pure in that respect. Like the barriers to entry are very low. Whereas, you know, when you look at other sports, um, like potentially winter sports, there's a lot of barriers to entry, especially in Australia where they're, you know, they're really expensive sports to participate in. Yeah. Um, you're speaking about sport being a great equaliser. I really recognised that when I was carrying the flag at the closing ceremony for Australia. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, I, it was, I had such an epiphany in that moment. I remember sitting in the waiting area, the holding bay, and there was one representative from every country there. And I remember just looking at all of these countries all across the world being in this one room together, and they were just so joyful that they were there competing at the Paralympics. And I was thinking, like, these are countries that historically have been at war with one another. Mm. You know, some countries, they don't like other people just because they're from another country. Um, And then you come to the Paralympic Games, and everyone just puts that aside for two weeks. And it was brilliant. And then Mm. I looked to my right, and I saw the two athletes from Afghanistan that had been evacuated. And I was just thinking, like, this is incredible. Like, this this whole movement is incredible, and it's so important. Um, And I, I had that epiphany 
after being to my, going to my fourth games, it took me a while to realize just how big the Paralympics is and how much of an impact it has on just global unity. And I was like, wow, I love this. <laughs> It was incredible. And I think that moment with the athletes from Afghanistan really just sort of transcended everything that was going on because, you know, there's so many other issues over there, especially with women's rights as well, like potentially being able to participate in any sort of sport. And it was just such a beautiful moment, I guess, to see you out there representing our country. But maybe you could talk to us about, I guess, the process of how um, you got um, selected to be the flag bearer for the closing ceremony. Oh, I don't actually understand what the criteria is. My understanding being on the team mm-hmm. is that the most successful athlete at that Games is selected for closing ceremony flag bearer. And I was asked by, well, they actually invited me to a, a fake photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Paralympic Committee. Yeah, they're like, we need you to come to this photo shoot. And I was like, they're like, where are your tracks in the medals? And I was like, okay. I was a bit tired at that stage because I just finished from racing, but I was like, okay. And so I, I went to this Japanese garden and was getting some photos taken. And our chef mission, she snuck up behind me with a flag and asked if I could get a flag bearer. And I didn't, I was so honored because I, I didn't have any gold medals around my neck. I hadn't won any gold medals at the Paralympics mm. this time around. And so to still be asked um, was a real honour for me. And it, I think it just really highlights that our chef the mission, Kate McLaughlin, she is the most incredible leader. You know, she sees athletes as people as well. Uh, and obviously had recognised, I've had, I've been on the team for a very long time, but mm. um, I I really try hard to create a very good culture in our Paralympic team and I think she'd recognise that and had selected me based on, on what I had provided to the team outside of sport as well. And I, I was like so honoured to be able to do that for her, like carry the flag for her, carry the flag for Australia. It was an unbelievable experience. Like when you're at home and you're growing up and you see flag bearers on television, you never think about what they're feeling or what the moment feels like for them really. You just think it's cool that they're out there. Um, but to kind of flip that on its head and to go through the experience myself, it was indescribable. It was so much cooler than I ever thought it would be. I just wish everybody could be a flag bearer because it was like a life-changing 10 minutes of my life. <laughs> yeah, it was – if anyone hasn't seen, I guess, a vision of Ellie or the photos, they just – they are magical really. That's the only way I think – to describe them and it is something I guess that very few people get to experience and a difficult emotion to articulate especially after you'd been on the team for many years but although you didn't win any gold medals in Tokyo you are the most decorated female Paralympian in Australia you have 17 medals total which is a pretty uh it's pretty heavy swag you've got there. I'm not sure how you've got them all <laughs> displayed. I think I need some evidence of your setup with all your medals out on display, Ellie. But I guess out of the 17, if you had to pick maybe just one or two races that mean to the most to you, what would they be? Yeah, 17 medals, hey? Not bad. I, I, <laughs> pretty good. Still, I don't know. I really – I never planned for this to happen. I don't know how it happened really. I just – 
love to swim mm. and I just have swum for so long <laughs> and sometimes at the end of my race there's been a medal waiting and sometimes there haven't but even the, the races where I haven't won medals I've still enjoyed them just as much it's yeah. like it's like the medals are just the, the icing um the one that I means the most to me is though is the 100 meter backstroke race in Rio mm. because I had experienced my very first panic attack of my entire life like <gasps> half an hour before that event and I didn't know what was happening to me. I just felt this like overwhelming sense of fear. What, what had happened is I was in the changing room and I was getting changed into my racing suit and this swimmer came in from Great Britain and she was beside herself in tears. She hadn't performed very well and she was absolutely beside herself and then this like pang of fear just overcame me and was, I was like a deer in the headlights and I had my suit half up which is not not a good moment in time to be a deer oh, in the headlights. You'd want it all the way up. But um, I all of a sudden couldn't breathe and I didn't know what was happening to me and I went and locked myself in like a toilet cubicle and was just trying to get myself to calm down. Oh, really? And it was incredible because I was always, I've always been a very confident athlete and in the backstroke event that I was about to race, I hadn't been beaten in four years and I was a world record holder and so like I had a good shot of winning. Um. I had a good shot of swimming well, but yeah, this fear just completely overcame me and I couldn't breathe. I could barely get myself out of this toilet cubicle. And I had to like kind of fight really hard to just quickly calm myself down and get out onto the pool deck and race. But even when I was out on pool deck, like I couldn't feel my body. I felt like everything was just shaking. Um, and so to be able to still race really well, even feeling that way and to be able to still win a gold medal like I don't know how I did it I really don't that (laughs) is incredible like there's so much that goes into racing like you look at even just being able to focus or being peaking at your form in the cycle within four or five years as it has been is an incredible feat in and of itself without the added layer of having you know a panic attack and just having that real wave of anxiety come over you which really can take away from the narrow-minded focus you need to be able to perform. Yeah, I think in a way it was really good for me to go through that. I'm not exactly sure where those feelings came from, but I do remember watching the Olympics and I remember the media just being horrible at times to some of our Australian athletes. Mm -hmm. And, like, these were friends of mine that I was reading about and, like, I'd known how much they had pushed themselves to be able to be at Rio and to, um, yeah, for them to have to go through that experience was not nice to read about. So I think, you know, the way that I feel like the media approaches athletes can be very negative at times. That's brutal. And a, a lot of athletes go into a competition before they've even gotten there. They are so worried about how they're going to be received at home if they don't do well. And then all of a sudden, those thoughts are just all-consuming. Mm. And I really noticed that at the Tokyo Olympics, watching Jess Fox um, in her first event, um, she wanted to win. She wanted to win so much and she came third. And I just remember watching that race. She's a good friend of mine and thinking, gosh, I hope she's not disappointed with that. And I hope that she doesn't think that everyone thinks any less of her as a person because I was so proud of her just for getting to Tokyo. Like it was so hard to get to Tokyo. And, like, that in itself is an achievement. And so, um, yeah, the last Paralympic cycle and Olympic cycle, you know, I feel like it's it's almost my job to go around and tell every athlete that they're a person first. 
their performances don't mean that, you know, they're any less of a person if they don't perform the way that they don't expect. So, um, yeah, it's completely changed my approach to being an athlete, I think, going through that experience. Yeah, there's so much um, writing, I think, on the Australian media. Obviously, we're diehard sports fans, which is why, you know, we have so many opportunities when we're younger to pursue so many different things and have avenues to success. But if they love you, they love you. But if they're not on the Ali bandwagon, they're definitely not going to be pushing you forward. And there's also, you know, like when you have success at the Olympic Games, you know, so many doors open up for you as an elite athlete you know there's so many people that compete at the games um you know that don't get paid a lot of money and you know winning a medal can really change their life in terms of their commercial viability as an athlete and that's so much pressure Mm, it is and i feel like athletes just get sucked into that pressure and they put all of their worth on like one little performance um, you know, like when Saya um, crashed out at the, uh, in a BMX event at the Olympics in Tokyo, I remember I messaged her after and I said, you know, being a good person always comes first. It doesn't matter. Like, this doesn't make any difference to how people who you love your home view you. And I said that, you know, representing Australia is, awesome um winning a medal is an the icing on the cake and i was like at the end of the day you are the cake (laughs) (laughs) you don't need icing to be a good cake (laughs) yeah that's that's really really lovely ellie they're lucky to have you well i just yeah i've just i've seen it all in my career and i've seen what what a negative you know, just one negative article or a comment from somebody who is not even in the sport at all can do to somebody. And it's just heartbreaking to watch from the outside because, um, yeah, people just don't have enough, some athletes just don't have enough confidence in themselves or they can just shake that off. And it's hard. Yes. Everyone on our team, everyone on the Olympic team, everyone on the Paralympic team are just such good people. And I just, want to make sure that they remember that and that's all there is to it (laughs) yeah it is all about being a good person I guess and pushing through um you know things that come your way and maintaining I guess that sort of optimism and kindness after the 2012 Olympics you had two not one but two shoulder reconstructions um they're pretty serious operations for any athlete, but I guess, you know, in swimming, your shoulders are pretty important. Um, Maybe you can Mm. talk about, I guess, your rehab and how you managed to get back on top in the pool and I guess your mindset going into that. Was it a longevity thing? Was it, you know, a much-needed operation? Um, Yeah, the shoulder reconstructions, I knew that I was going to need them because I was training at the Australian Institute of Sport where you and I met, actually. Yes. Um, and I was really struggling to train because my shoulders were like peeling off the labrum, like the oh. bit of cartilage that they sit in. And I was getting to the point where I was like struggling to wash my hair. I remember being on an exercise bike at ALS and like I couldn't get, I couldn't take my own jumper off because I couldn't lift my shoulders above my head. Like it was, I was not in a good way and I had to try and like push through this and get to the London Games. Um, so by the time I got to London Games, I'd been pushing through a fair amount of pain for a long time and I was so 
over swimming at that point. Like I just didn't want anything to do with swimming because anytime I thought about swimming, I just thought about my shoulders. And anytime I thought about my shoulders, very painful memories came up and resurfaced. And so I got back from London and I retired and um, I took about a year out of the water and was told that I need to have my shoulders reconstructed because I was still having a lot of problems with them. And um, I remember going to my surgeon and he told me that I would never be able to swim again if I had my shoulders reconstructed. And I remember I just like broke down into tears in his, in his like surgery room when he was giving me this advice, like you won't be able to swim again. And I was like, why are you getting, I said to myself, like, why are you getting so upset over something that you hate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I thought that I hated anyway. Mm. Um, And then I realized that, oh, maybe you do love swimming. And I decided after my surgeries that I would try to swim again and um, try and get back in the water again. And uh, it was really slow to start with because my my mind could remember how to swim, but my body was not cooperating. You know, when you have... Shoulder reconstructions, it's like a, an eight-week recovery period where you can't move your arms at all. And so you have to retrain your body on how to do everything. And so it was interesting. I'd get in and my mind would remember, but my body just was not cooperating. And um, I just took it really slowly and just was trying to um, do the best rehab program that I can. And after a while, things started turning around like they should have been. And I think I was, I made my the world championship team about seven or eight months after my shoulder surgeries and ended up swimming on it and going to those world championships and breaking my first world record. And I was just completely mind blown because I had gone into this competition with not minimal training, but training as more on the land than I was in the water for the first time ever. I had thrown everything that I believed about training out the window and had done a completely different rehab-based, Pilates-based training program and swam way faster than I ever had in my life. And to this day, I have never swam that fast before. Oh. And I don't know I don't know what I did. <laughs> New shoulders, Pilates, that sounds like the dream, the dream combo. It was such a great training program, but the, no one in, no coach in Swimming Australia wants to train an athlete that way. You know, <laughs> no. it goes against, it goes against everything that you learn in uni. Mm. And, um, yeah, so it's really hard for me as a swimmer to find a coach who would support me in a program like that. And I've never swam as fast as I did then. And it's really, yeah, it's really hard to train on your own. So I have to go and train under a coach. But um, that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to in the development of sport is, uh, yeah, how to, how to train differently, how to train smarter, you know, less is more, I think. Yeah, and it doesn't work for everyone. So. Yeah. Let's talk about that, I guess. Um, you put a post up on Instagram saying you're taking a little bit of a siesta. I guess maybe we can talk about some of the stuff you do outside of the pool. There's obviously lots of advocacy and I think we'll probably finish on that because I think you've been doing some amazing work. But I guess away from actually swimming, what are other things that you're passionate about? Um, I love anything exercising. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> which I don't know if a lot of the listeners do appreciate. Um, but anything that gets me moving, I I just love the kick that you get out of exercising. Like even in quarantine, I've been doing a lot of uh, 
it's a center workout. Mm. I don't know if you've tried center. Oh, Chris Hemsworth. Hard. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Chris Hemsworth barely makes an appearance. I'm very disappointed. I know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just really enjoy exercising. I really enjoy uh, being outdoors, hiking, um, cooking, nutrition, pretty much anything that's like health-related. I can't get enough of it. Um, that's not to say that I'm a super healthy person. In fact, I'm not at all. But I just appreciate um, things that make you feel good. And so eating well for me is one of those. Um, exercising is one of those. Drinking lots of water is one of those. Getting sunlight, you know. Um, because I, as an athlete, we put our bodies through so much stress that I feel like anything that we do to make it feel better, we just do it. And... Yeah, so I've just kind of gotten myself into the habit of a bit more of the well-being side of things. And I've taken a really keen interest in it because it makes me feel better. Yeah, it's a really um, enjoyable yeah. lifestyle. I'm a big oh, advocate for drinking um, lots of water. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm one of those people where I go to like a restaurant for dinner and I need my own like water bottle thing oh, yeah. there. Because they're like, can we get some table water and an extra one for Ellie because she's going to drink her own one. Just BYO. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just love it. I just, I really love it. And um, yeah. Yeah. It's been good. So I guess a large chunk, I guess, of your life, um, given your swimming career, has been, I guess, about advocacy. Uh, you're in a Netflix documentary which aired last year, which if anyone hasn't watched it, they definitely should. It's called Rising Phoenix. And um, I guess it sort of charts the history of the Paralympic Games and the positive impact it's really had on disability representation. Um, what was that like? How did you get approached? And I guess what was the reception when it finally aired last year? Well, Rising Phoenix was a long time in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually approached, I was just, my manager rang me uh, on the phone, was like, the Paralympic Committee want you to be involved in this documentary about the Paralympics. Um, and I was pretty keen because anything that showcases the Paralympic movement, I am all for that. Mm. And then she said, Prince Harry's going to be in it. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do it. Um, but they, they did the filming after a, a nine-day competition in London, and I was so tired. Oh. I remember I woke up the next morning and they got me in this taxi and took me out to – like the middle of nowhere in London I was so anxious because I had left my team behind I was in a country that I didn't really know all on my own and I was going to this place random place in a taxi and I was just like oh I was freaking out to be honest and I got to this um the shooting venue and it was like a big fish tank and they would they would for about I think it was six or seven hours they would kind of get me to go they'd pull me down by the ankle like five meters deep in this fish tank thing and I'd have to hold my breath and they did all this lighting stuff to make me look cool and I was wearing like a Spice Girls gold swimsuit um, and I remember just being super anxious because uh, I had to take my contact lenses out so I couldn't see anything and they would just kept pulling me down, pulling me down and every time I went down I'd have to pop my ears oh. and it was just a really stressful day of filming but then... <laughs> When I saw the footage, I was like, wow, it's beautiful. Like, I'm happy oh, that I did this. At that amazing. stage, it hadn't been – yeah, at that stage, Netflix hadn't bought the documentary. Oh. The producers were just saying, um, you know, we're going to try and sell this to Netflix. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, every producer says that. <laughs> every producer wants their documentary on Netflix. 
And then I got a phone call a few months later saying that Netflix had bought the documentary and they were going to launch it on the day the Paralympics was supposed to happen yeah. in 2020. And yeah, they dropped it on Netflix to 180 countries and my Instagram, my David Beckham messaged me on Instagram. My Instagram <laughs> went crazy. I know. My Instagram went crazy. And people were like, I didn't realize that the Paralympics um, had overcome all of these challenges and like it's total BS what you guys have been through as athletes. And we've had so many Paralympic advocates since that day. And I think, honestly think that Rising Phoenix was one of the biggest driving forces behind um, Paralympic equal pay in Australia in the last few weeks because people are just team Paralympics now. But they don't care how we perform. They're just team Paralympics. They want people to be treated equally in Australia. Mm. And um, Rising Phoenix, I think, was a big driving force behind that. Yeah, the shot of you that's on the promotional material as well as all of the other, I guess, video um, B-roll, which is included in the background of your story, it is, it's beautiful for anyone who hasn't seen it. And I guess that story about equal pay for Paralympic athletes who medal has been a big focus of some of the sports media coverage because I guess it's one of those things where people people probably just assume that it, that isn't the case and then when it comes to light um, and there's a little bit of backwards and forwards, thing, although it's a bit, I guess, uncomfortable for some people because, you know, there's the financial restrictions when people find mm. out that things like that are the case, real change actually happens. Mm. And that's one thing that hit me hard when I was in Tokyo is that I always just assumed that people weren't advocating for us because they didn't care. Um, and it, that I, I really discovered in Tokyo that that's not the case at all. People didn't know that Paralympians got were paid differently, when I say differently, not at all, yeah. um, to their Olympic team and – once people discovered that, there was outrage. And I was sitting there just in my in my, my room in Athletes Village just being like, oh, my gosh, people actually care about yeah. us. I never, I never thought they did. <laughs> and it was, really, it was a really nice feeling. Yeah, and mm. that's really powerful, I think, like even looking forward to um, the next Paris Games. I guess that just – creates even more equal opportunity for, for all athletes that um, are eligible um, for Olympic sports. And I guess you're also yeah. involved in a few other, I guess, uh, disability advocacy programs. There's one called We The 15. Is there anything else, I guess, that you really lend your voice to to try and just um, echo some of those sentiments about inclusion and, um, I guess... Uh, what is possible for people? Yeah, I think, you know, we live in a day and an age now where representation is so important. And I think social media has played such a big role in that because, mm. you know, people who necessarily didn't have a voice before all of a sudden can create a hashtag or speak, speak what they're feeling online where we never had access to that before. And we, the 15... I, that's a um, collaboration with the International Paralympic Committee. Mm -hmm. That's going to be one of the biggest campaigns towards disability equality that the world has ever seen. It's it's a ten year program for one, wow. and people from people from all sectors are involved. It's not just about sport. Yep. You've got people from you know politics. You've got people from business, like all walks of life. And the great thing is, it's um. But these organisations from all across the world are jumping on board 
um, when We The 15 was launched worldwide, every, like these huge landmarks all across the world were just turning purple in support of it. And, you know, one of the biggest driving forces behind the We The 15 is just to create conversations, create awareness mm. for people to sit back and think, does my environment cater for people with disabilities like yeah. it should? Um, and so it's kind of just bringing disability to the forefront of our social agenda, which is so exciting. Um, one thing that really surprised me when I was um, learning about the Way to Sydney program is that 85% of people with disabilities live in poverty. 85. That's crazy. That's huge. I know. So this kind of this kind of campaign is aiming to change that, and only good things can come from yeah. it. But you know, it's wonderful that a campaign like this is happening because. People are finally feeling heard and um, valued. Like that's when when equal pay came through when I was at Paralympics, I felt so valued as an athlete for the first time in my whole career. Well, and yeah. I I want everyone with a disability to feel that way. So um, this campaign is going to be really great for that. Well, I can't yeah. wait to see what impact it has over the next, I guess, period of time, especially with, I guess. Uh, the Paralympic Games being such a large media presence, I guess, in that representation of people with a disability. But Ellie, thank you so much for sharing your story and joining me on Finding Your Fearless. I think you're an incredible athlete and you're an incredible human, which is more important. And I guess enjoy your rest and we can't wait to see um, what's next for you. Thank you. I can't wait to see what's next for you either. You're incredible too. <laughs> <Awesome>. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 12 of Finding Your Fearless, a Melbourne Vixens podcast hosted by Joe Weston. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. Just like the Vixens, Deakin University is fearless in its approach to learning. I'm currently studying a Masters of Communication, which I'm absolutely loving. Deakin University, progressive real-world learning.